Have you ever longed to escape reality or fantasized about stepping into someone else's shoes, even for just a little while? Hi, I'm Laura Mullen. And I'm Chris Hawley. We host CBC's Play Me, the immersive podcast that transforms theater into addictive audio fiction. Join us for a new season and disappear into a world rich with drama, where every show delivers hypnotizing stories and unveils intriguing characters with secrets. Play me wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hey, I'm Tom Power. Welcome to Q. So yeah, let me set up this story for you. At the end of the Vietnam War, during the fall of Saigon, a young girl and her family are forced to flee their home. And there's a dangerous sea crossing, and they end up at a refugee camp in Malaysia. And then uh, they leave there, and they go to this kind of snowy, foreign land where, you know, no one speaks the language and no one eats the food that they do. It's Quebec in the middle of the winter. That story, and, and so many like it, was a reality for tens of thousands of people who were forced to leave Vietnam in the late 1970s, including Kim Thuy. Kim works as an interpreter, then a lawyer, then a seamstress, then a restaurateur. And then one day at a red light, and she'll explain that, she decides to write about her story and everything that came after it. That novel, Rue, was published in its original French in 2009. It becomes this massive bestseller in Quebec and in France. It wins the Governor General's Literary Award. It gets translated into English, shortlisted for the prestigious Giller Prize, and wins Canada Reads. So up until now, Rue has sold over half a million copies across 45 countries. And now, after a decade of development, there's a film adaptation. And the film tells the story of 10-year-old Tin as she begins to reckon with the traumatic journey that she's endured and how she adapts to the new culture and language and landscape in Quebec. That film, a Canadian film, has already made nearly $1.8 million at the box office in Quebec. So that's kind of where I started uh, when Kim Twee came by our studio earlier this week. I wanted to ask her about how it feels that a film so personal to her is doing so well. Oh, surprisingly, you know, I thought it was very a very niche kind of movie yeah. because it's a slow movie. We never thought that the audience would respond to that. Yeah. Uh, but people love it. You know, they they like the, um, how would I say it, the time to mm-hmm. reflect. Mm. So they said that we don't impose an emotion, which is, you know, give them enough space to feel. Uh, so that's what they say. You so don't dictate whether they should feel sad or contemplative or happy or introspective. You just give them a lot of space to feel the emotions that they're feeling. Yes. And because, you know, when I was 10, living, the, you know, going through the, uh, the the moment, living the event, you don't have enough time to think about your emotions. And also at 10, you know, you cannot identify your emotions. And then I didn't have French to in order to name them. And my Vietnamese was, um, how would I say that? I spoke Vietnamese, of course, but during the last three years in Vietnam, from Mm. 75 to 78, after the communists came in in 75, we basically had to stop talking 
so that you don't make the other person bear the weight of information. Mm. So in the home, in the city, in the country, nobody dare to talk no more. So basically you lose a lot of, you know, language and emotions and and sensations, uh, feelings and all of that, right? You cannot express these to verbalize uh, the emotions. So I didn't have any. So in order to, for this movie to be very authentic mm. to what that little girl, you know, was mm. uh, when she was 10, was that I I couldn't name the emotion. So I, could, I cannot give it to the audience. Oh. I can only show what we were going through. It's not so much a narrative device for the audience to, to get, gain their own conclusions about what's going on in the uh, film. Exactly. It's, it's also getting them to uh, live what you went through. Yes, just which live is just the moment ex- with me. Experiencing all these, these, these new things, all this trauma, uh, uh, tragedy, and not really having words or um, emotions for it. And we get to be in your sense. I never thought about that. It's very interesting. Yeah, yeah, so that's why the movie was very daring in the sense that, you know, you trust that the public will travel with you, will come into the, 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 the will enter the situation at the same time than, than, than I did at that point in time. And, uh, but surprisingly, you know, we, uh, yeah, the public has responded. Did you have any hesitations at all about, Putting this story, I mean, it's a really, it's it's a personal story. I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's we're, we're talking about a, a, a quote unquote fictional character, but it's your story. Did you have any hesitations about making a film? Of a course film not. Adaptation? No. To have someone who is interested in your story, you know, I'm just, a, I'm a nobody. Why would anyone want to put my story into a movie? You know, like, yeah, make a movie out of of my life. So. Of course, no hesitation. And also no hesitation because I think it's very uh, difficult to get attached to uh, a, a big word, you know, like caravan of migrants or uh, a sea of people coming in. You need to be attached. You know, our brain, our human brain mm. needs to have a face, a story. So if I could be a face or a story to talk about immigration, to talk about the situation of refugees, then I should say yes. I should always say yes. I have the responsibility to say yes uh, to all the invitation and all the proposals out there. You didn't just say yes, though. You came on as associate producer. I don't talk to many novelists, and I don't talk to many folks who have their stories being turned into a film, who who get involved on the on the level that you do. Why why was that so important to you? Oh, I didn't know what a producer meant. <laughs> you know, like what it, it meant. But because we uh, we uh, made the movie during COVID time, yeah, and the team already is uh, the the crew was over one hundred people, mm-hmm. and how to protect. The, the actors and actresses from COVID, right? Mm-hmm. So everybody needed to have a role, like a specific role to be on set. Okay. And if you want me to be on set, to visit the set, I needed to have kind of a, a role. Mm-hmm. And then they gave me just a bogus role. You <laughs> know, like, <laughs> producer, you, go. And that's it. What were you, were you, were you, were you, were you, were you looking at the script? Were you looking at the no. other day? Were you, were you looking at the shots? Were you? I don't do, I didn't do anything. <laughs> <laughs> but if uh, the director was here, he would tell you that I I was kind of their uh, seal of, of approval because I would arrive on set, 
right? And I, I remember I was walking into the uh, the the home in Saigon, mm-hmm. you know, my my uh, childhood uh, house, mm-hmm. and it was minus twenty five outside. I had a big big you know winter coat on. I was shivering, but with double mask and all of that. I walked in and right away. I didn't know how, but I thought I was in Saigon. And I thought it was tropical, you know, temperature, the climate and all of that. And my body reacted. I never thought I had any trauma. You know, I'm happy. I'm fine with whatever had happened to me before. But all of a sudden, really, your senses would respond to the the ambience. And so I... Apparently, I hid myself somewhere and I cried. You know, I didn't cry, but tears just came down. And a, t- a technician went and, and said to the director, I think that, you know, our set is good because Kim, just, <laughs> Kim is crying in, in a corner. But you know why? Because, and they revealed to me afterwards why I, I, I felt Saigon. Because they really um, uh, make it, I don't know, they rent like this huge lamp, or, or I don't know how you call that, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, to lamp, have yeah, the yeah. tropical angle of the light. Oh. It was a, not a Nordic uh, light, yeah, but we're, a we're, tropical. In terms of the longitude and, 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 yes. and latitude, where the, where the sun would be coming from. Yes, yeah. and so it doesn't hit you know, the the room the same way. And then in Vietnam, it's very humid, Mm -hmm. right? It's like 200%, I think, of humidity. Mm -hmm. And it's very, well, it's not very dusty, but you have those particles, right? Because we don't clean the the streets as often. Mm -hmm. And all the windows are open because it's hot. It's Mm -hmm. a hot country. So in the air, you always have that humidity and a little bit of, of, you know, that density in the air. And in order to create that humidity they um they 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 put smoke mm. into the room they um layer it you know so that you don't see the swirl of of smoke mm. uh and after that they buy uh, uh toilet papers rolls mm. the fluffy ones mm. and they shake them together so that the fine the very fine dust would come out and stay in the air supported by the uh the smoke and so that's why it was Saigon, even though it was minus twenty-five. So you and you're—I mean, that's really interesting how they how they did that. What I what I find especially interesting is you said to me, you know, Tom, you know, I I, I don't consider myself who carries a lot of trauma around. You know, I consider myself very happy, very funny, you know, joyful, joyful person. Mm-hmm. What, so what happens? You you walk. Well, it makes sense. You're walking into the, the your your childhood home. Uh, your you know, past. Your past. This place you were taken from. This place you had. You know, you had to go on this incredibly treacherous journey to end up in Quebec. We're going to talk about that in a second. But you, you're telling me you walk into that place and you just start feeling what? Like I was here or or what? If you don't I, I was me, ten again. You know, like on one part of your brain, the rational one, you know that it's a film set. You, there, there, there are so many lamps and micros. I don't know many pieces of yeah, uh, okay, equipment, yeah, right? Yeah. But your senses. And what does that feel like? Oh, it, it was. You know, how many people have the chance to go back in time and live the emotions that you didn't have the opportunity to live? Because yeah. when you're going through uh, extreme experiences or circumstances, mm-hmm. apparently, according to a psychiatrist, she explained to me that the body would kind of shut down so that you can go through. If you feel all the things that you're feeling, then you would not survive, right? So you have to shut down some of the, the emotions. And for example, we were sleeping next to a pit of, you know, used as toilet for 2,000 people. 
And when I tell you next uh, to that pit was really 10 feet away right, for four months. This is the, in the refugee camp. Yeah. And our nose didn't, didn't smell that pit at all, except for the first day when mm. we arrived there. But after that, we, could, we didn't feel it. And we were fine. We slept next to it for four months. And so that's the body is so intelligent. You know, the brain, it helps you to survive. And that's why this movie, yeah, you walked in and all of a sudden, all the things that you didn't know you have comes, you know, surging from I don't know where, uh, from your skin. And it, it, it forces you to go back. But it's it's incredible to have this experience and to, to finally be able to pinpoint the emotions that I had lived. I mean, what a gift. I mean, so many people who do, I mean, almost everybody who's ever gone through that doesn't get to do that. Doesn't get no, to like of revisit. course not. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. it's a powerful thing. I'm the luckiest girl on earth. Can you describe to me, what, what do you remember? I mean, you're, you're, when you get to Quebec for the first time, this like, it's, not, it's probably a day like today here in Toronto. It's freezing here in Toronto. Today. Oh, There's, it's not cold today. Not at all. You know, uh, I'm from Montreal. <laughs> <laughs> there well, was so much snow. You have to go back 44 years ago. Right? Yeah. So we were, yeah, everywhere was covered with snow. Yeah. So to me, it was almost like, a, you know, when you arrive from a, a, a country in chaos, a country at war and a refugee camp, everything. Everything seems to be so dirty, so intense, you know. But then you arrive in a country where it's perfect white. It was virginal. And you just feel cleanliness, first of all. You know, you're just happy that it's clean. But more than that, a purity. And then after that, you know, we arrive in Granby. And these people embrace us right away with the same kind of purity than the snow. Meaning they loved us before we could say thank you. Before they knew our name, they already said to us, you are part of us. You are in this new family. And so I fell in love, you know, with that moment. I, I feel like that's a big part of the that's a big part of the book and a big part of the movie, what you mentioned there. I mean, there are moments when you're watching this film that yeah, Cora, the producer of this piece, and I were talking about this today. There are moments it feels like such a love letter to Quebec and being Quebecers in the in the 70s. I mean, the community that Tin's family, Tin, the characters based on you, that Tin's family settles in is is really welcoming and open, as you mentioned. Their fridge is overwhelming with home cooked food from neighbors. I've heard you talk about how like you couldn't make a meal. Everyone was no, just everyone, yeah. you know, like everyone was just giving you food all the time, you know? Yes, and inviting us to their home and so on and so forth. And they, yeah, they invite us everywhere, you know? And that was the best way to get into a culture, right? To be inside the home of someone. Uh, and, and well, the funny part is that they invited us to uh, camping. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we arrived from a refugee camp. <laughs> we didn't need to go camping. <laughs> and we didn't know what camping meant. So we were very, you know, open. We said, okay, we're going to camping. Okay, let's go. <laughs> and we wore our best clothes, right, to go to the to camping. And I'm like, oh, my God, why are we being punished again? You yeah. know, like, and, but... When I came home, I said to my mom, I said, do you know what camping was? You know, it's like sleeping in a tent again and not having a toilet, you know. And, and <laughs> You were like, I just did that. Yes. <laughs> and she said, you should feel lucky because this means that we have arrived in the greatest country of all. Uh, people are so comfortable in their home that they, they seek discomfort in camping. You know, you're, you, you, you're bored with your mattress. 
So you need to sleep in a sleeping bag. Come on. It's a great country. Yeah. Oh, paradise. We're here. <laughs> I, I got to tell you, though, I was going back to what you were saying about, um, you know, I, I asked you, were you any hesitations about taking this on? You said, like, listen, like, when you when you hear caravan of migrants, migrants, it's hard to imagine each individual person in that caravan has their own story and their own lives. And maybe if you can see things through one person's life, uh, you can empathize with them. And you said something to me. You were like, Tom, if I can be that person in this time, I'm willing to do, be that person. Listen, I'll be honest with you. I was watching the film. I, I was I was really loving it. And I was watching how welcoming uh, the people of Quebec were to you and your family in, in this film. It was hard not to think about the news that's happening right now. I mean, in, in Quebec, you have uh, Premier Legault. He wants to curb the number of asylum seekers to the province. Is that on your mind as you're out here talking to people like me and promoting this? It's always on my mind because, you know, uh, the way we talk about immigration has changed. Uh, and it's very unfair how we talk about immigration today. And I think we should maybe, you know, talk about immigration as an investment. An investment, you know, it's like when you have a child and you invest in uh, the child's education, you invest in, you know, all of that. And that's what immigration is about. It's adopting a, a child into a, a home. And then we, we, we yeah, we bring up the, this, this, this child. And then this child will bring in its own contribution to society. And so that's why I think we have to look at immigration very differently. It's not a charity act. It's an investment. Mm. And, and you know, the returns is there. You can totally calculate. And just my family, and I, this is not about bragging, you know, but I, I'm giving just one example here. Mm-hmm. The 13 people who left my family at that point in time in the refugee camp, we didn't even own, you know, a, a piece of plastic to, to, to build a tent for, for our family. And today, the, the 13 of us, we have maybe I don't know thirty millions, uh, uh, you know, as a fortune, a common fortune. And like a net worth of thirty million dollars between yes. between all of you. So okay. everyone did very well. But normally, you know, yeah. just becoming an architect, uh, a, a computer science, a, yeah. a, a dentist. My brother is an actuary, and mm-hmm. he is the CEO of Sun Life in Vietnam right now. Mm. Right, so. Of course, as a country, you can say, oh, you know, uh, these 13 people have taken away 30 millions from the Canadians. Mm. Or you can say these 13 people have enriched our country of 30 millions. So it's a question of choice. And the, 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 the thing here is that both explanations is logical in a way. Mm. And it is up to us to choose. But I think we are in a country where... We don't really have a choice because we need uh, each other and we need more people to to maintain what we have today. But a refugee, you know, when you have survived the sea, the, 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 the walls, the police, the armies, you know, all of that, I would say that most of the time they, are, they have become superhuman, like triathlon or decathlon yeah, people, yeah. right? So chances are they will be able to contribute to the to, to their adoptive uh, country. I mean, I mean, you were you were. I mean, what an incredible contribution you, you've done over the years. I mean, even before you were a writer, uh, we mentioned you were an interpreter, uh, worked in textiles, uh, a restaurateur. 
um, uh, a lawyer. Now, I heard a story about Rue when I was reading about this, about how you ended up being a writer in the first place. Is that this all <laughs> happened at like a red a red light? Yeah. Can you tell me that story? I still fall asleep at red lights, right? Because they're too long. And <laughs> <laughs> after two seconds, I'm gone. And so one way for me to stay awake was to take notes. And then one day I, I ran out of ideas, you know, take notes about what. So I started writing kind of but I didn't know that I was writing I was just enjoying the notes to keep my the hamsters you know alive and kicking but you weren't writing you weren't writing like oh, one day I did this and one day I did this and one day I did that no. you, were, you were writing at your red light you were writing very poetic you know beautiful sort of verse about I was very free because I I was my intention was not to write a book, so you have the freedom to write whatever came to your mind right at that moment. And I love words, you know, words to me it's it's uh, an encounter every time, you know. I I remember the first time I met the word melancholia mm-hmm. in in French is melancholie. I didn't know what it meant. I just knew that it sounded so good, you know, melancholy. And I, when I went to look up for the definition, I said, oh, it's a sad word. <laughs> but but the sound is still so beautiful, right? So to me, melancholia is nicer than nostalgia because of that first moment when I met the, the word and because of the sound of the word. So in a way, I have this chance to not know the language and to meet one word at a time, you know, and to learn from it by other senses as well, not only by knowing it, uh, but yeah, just by the sound and the look of it. You know, when you write melancholia, mm. it's so beautiful. It is. It is. It's far more beautiful than the than the feeling you get when you're when you're doing it. You're right about that. But I'm I'm stuck at you with the red light. You're stuck at the red light yourself. Huh? Okay. Yeah, I'm, I'm stuck yeah, at the red yeah. light part. You're stuck <laughs> at the red light. You're writing this freedom, sure, and you're writing this beautiful poetic verse. But you're also processing something. You're writing about your life up to that point through the lens of this this fictional Yeah, because character. it was the easiest uh, subject. You know, I knew it really well. And I didn't have time for research or anything because I was working a lot. And I was being a new mom with two kids, one who got uh, diagnosed with autism mm-hmm. at that point. So I was very busy with everything. Mm-hmm. So it could not be... Um, uh, demanding in terms of research. So, of course, I wrote about something that I knew uh, by heart. Did you know, I mean, uh, I've seen Rue being called the first Vietnamese Canadian novel. Did did you know you were doing something groundbreaking when you were doing it? I had no idea. I did you, I've just learned this that it was the first uh, book about the Vietnamese. Uh, no, I I don't think I was the first. It's it's called the first the first like Vietnamese Canadian novel okay. about the Vietnamese Canadian experience. Okay, well I'm happy to be the first, and I hope that if I was the first, then I have opened up you yeah. know the door for many more because we were over a million Vietnamese you mm-hmm. know fleeing and it's surprising that we don't have more books yeah you know or movies talking about this uh, odyssey from 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 the perspective of the Vietnamese yes yeah, absolutely people, yeah, and it's important to hear it from uh, all sides not only from one side and I'll give you one example you know the the Vietnam war yeah in any languages, we would call it Vietnam War. Yeah, right? I, was, I was. I grew up knowing that there was World War One, World War Two, and then the Vietnam War. Yeah, mm-hmm. but when Korean you're War, Vietnamese yeah. uh, and you speak Vietnamese and you're Vietnamese, you call it the American War. 
Of course, yeah. right? You cannot call it the Vietnamese War. And mm. this is why it's very dangerous to have only one side of mm. the story because we need to understand, you know, the, the 360 degree uh, of, of this. Uh, well, of course, we never get to the 360 degrees, but at least two or three uh, different points of view so that we can understand the situation better. Between that and, and the conversation around leaving Vietnam and, you know, re-experiencing that trauma as a child, but also how your body shuts down when you have to experience trauma as a child, as Kim did, I felt like I learned something or something changed my perspective every, like, five minutes in that conversation. That's the first part of my conversation with the Canadian author Kim Twee, who's been telling you about the making of the film Rue, which is based on her best-selling novel of the same name, which is based on her own story. So uh, coming up on the show, stick around. Kim's going to tell you... Uh, why she phoned up the director of the film and told him to try and forget about her and her novel while telling the story. Plus some new music from Tafari Anthony coming up. Uh, I want to let you know before we uh, take a break here that if you're not already subscribed to our TikTok, at uh, CBCQ on TikTok or uh, on Instagram, at CBCQ on Instagram, you're missing a great reel. You're missing a great story. Uh, Jake Johnson, who is one of the funniest guests we've ever had on the show, told a story about working at a bat mitzvah, uh, getting fired as a server. And I said, so they were they were short-staffed? They were willing to be short-staffed rather than keep you on? And he said, Tom, they were short-staffed with me. They were shorter-staffed with me. It's one of my favorite stories we've ever had on the show. We posted up the real version of it, R-E-E-L, at CBCQ on Instagram or on TikTok. Go check that out. Okay, more Q after this. Hi, I'm Jesse Crookshank. Jesse Crookshank. I host the number one comedy podcast called Phone a Friend. Girl, let's phone a friend. Not only do I break down the biggest stories in pop culture with guests like Dan Levy and members of InSync, I do it with my own personal boy band singing jingles throughout because it's my show. It's your show, girl. New episodes of Phone a Friend. Yeah. Drop Thursdays wherever you get your podcasts. So work it, girl, yeah, work it. Okay, that's enough. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. You're in the middle of my conversation with the author Kim Twee, who published her novel Rue in French in 2009. It was translated into English in 2012, and now it's been made into a film. Rue, if you're not familiar with it, is the story of Kim's own life, from being forced out of her home in Saigon as a child to starting over in Quebec. And it's one thing to write that story where you have total control over how your own life story and the story of your family is being told. It's a whole other thing when you have to hand that story to pretty much a stranger, like a, a, a director and actors to bring the most personal thing you've ever gone through, the most traumatic thing you've ever gone through to life. So Kim was in the studio and I asked her, you know, when it came time to talk to the director, Charles-Ovier Michaud and Chloe Danji, the young actor who plays the character based on Kim, what did she want to tell them? What did they need to know about her life story? Her answer kind of surprised me. Take a listen. I called the director basically uh, because we have we have, we know each other for seven years now. So from time to time, I call him up. I said, "Don't remember, you are free to do the you know to make the movie that you want to make. It's not about me. It's not about the book. Forget me. Forget the book." So I kept saying that to him. You know, forget me. Take the freedom. You know, use all of it. And same thing with Chloe. You know, when I met her, and she asked me, I said. 
No. You you played the role that you you know as you understand it. Did she have any questions for you? Did she have questions um, for you? She only complained uh, about one thing. She said, "I speak three languages and I don't get to speak at all in the movie. You know, I don't have many lines." And I said, "Well, you know, you remember I I didn't speak French. I didn't speak English. So of course I couldn't. I, there was no." dialogues mm. right and so i just said that and she understood it right away and never complained again i mean what was that like for you i mean you're right tin in the film spends the most of the film in silence you and i started off the conversation by talking about the amount of silence in this film and you're right that she, she doesn't speak english she doesn't speak french but also as we talked about earlier she's facing this trauma that she doesn't have language for and our body kind of shuts down when we experience this trauma and she's just silently uh, taking it in. You told me earlier what it was like to walk into the home in, in Saigon and see that again. What was it like to watch her, a lot of emotion, very few words, play this role on, on screen? What was that like for you? I couldn't believe that she existed, you know, and, and because she was so perfect for the role and she could convey all the emotions much better than I could, you know. But that you felt, the emotions that you felt. Yes, yes. But I didn't know that. Maybe I acted that way, but I, I never knew because nobody f yeah. was filming me, yeah. right? But I saw her and I said, oh, she felt exactly like I did. You know, she could express like her discomfort when the the, the, the man in the, the restaurant gave her his book, kind of, uh, the piece of paper for her to read. Mm -hmm. And she was very scared of what he was asking her to do. But the only movement that you could see were was her hands folding, you know, towards her a little bit more. And if you don't pay attention, you don't even see it, but you can feel it. You know, so I don't know if it was in the script or not, but the way she acted was so authentic and right. And that also because we were lucky. She left Vietnam just a year before. So she was still extremely Vietnamese. And the Vietnamese, we don't verbalize our emotions, uh, you know, so much. And so all the emotions are expressed in very tiny little gestures. You have to pay attention to see it, right? And so she still had that in her. So she could act as a Vietnamese, as the little girl that I was today. Of course, you see me going all over the place with my hands, that I have become Canadians, you know? <laughs> <laughs> but Chloe was still Vietnamese. And today, three years later, oh, she's a Canadian now. Uh, I don't think she can act uh -huh. with the same kind of, you know... Not, not do that reserve. same type of role, that same type of... To, 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 to sort to of... To have that reflex. Yeah, 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 yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. I mean, because the film, in, in addition to being about you, I mean, it's also in many, in many ways, the, the film and the novel is the story of your parents. Um, the challenge of, of trying to take children to Canada, start a new life in Canada. One thing that always stood out to me, maybe you can talk about this a little bit, especially for your mom, the lifestyle change from going from Vietnam to Canada. Of course. It changed so much. It was so different that you don't compare. Yeah. You it was know, pretty luxurious in, in Vietnam. Yes, yes. But, you know, you have to accept right away that you lose all that. And we were lucky that, uh, first of all, we we lost the house to the, the communist regime, right, mm -hmm. half of it. And then after that, we were lucky that we spent that time in the refugee camp because then it set yourself back to zero or under zero, actually. You lose your humanity in a refugee camp. So I would say sub-zero. 
right? So you don't compare anymore. When you arrive here, you don't compare, oh, rice in Canada, minute rice tastes not as good as the rice in Vietnam. You don't compare because there was this period where you don't, you didn't have enough to eat. You're just happy that you have minute rice, right? And, and, and the mattress, you don't compare with your mattress in Vietnam. You're just happy that you have a mattress because in between, in the camps, you just slept directly on, on the ground, right, next to a forest and next to a, 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 yeah. a toilet, yeah. right? Yeah. Um, so we were very lucky. That just gave us the opportunity to really start from zero without uh, making any comparison. Lucky is such an interesting word to use there, you know. Um, I know, but, you know, luck doesn't come uh, with a bow every time. Luck very often, I think, is hidden behind um, behind uh, a challenge. It, it's only when you take on the challenge that you will discover the luck behind. Of course, it was very, you know, I don't wish this for anybody, but the fact that there was the war and the fact that we left and so on and so forth, I have had the opportunity to learn a new culture, to become a new culture, you know, to add one more to my Vietnamese culture at the beginning. So today I have, yeah, the, uh, and I said one, but it's two in Canada to be exposed to the French culture and also to the English culture at the same time. And so you become enriched by the experience. But of course, at the beginning, it was a challenge. But if you do have the chance to survive the challenge, you will get to that, you know, lucky spot mm. where you become bigger than, you know, whatever that you uh, came to life with. Um, maybe this is a good way to close things off. Your, your parents have seen the film, right? Yes, they have. So your parents not only had the, the novel, which was mm-hmm. uh, in some ways about their experience, but now they get to see their experience on, on screen. I should say the difference between the uh, novel and the film is that the novel focuses a lot on your adult life in, in, in Quebec, whereas the film specifically focuses on Tin's time in, you know, adjusting to life in Quebec. Yeah, as, as the, a, arrival. As, yeah the arrival. It was only just So when, which is would be your parents were young then, then mm-hmm. too. What did they say to you after they saw it? Oh, you know, we talk so much uh, in my family, so and we agree that we disagree about everything uh, because each of us would have a different angle, a different take on our experience, right? My parents in the camp uh, were had different worries than, than the kids did. You know, we spend our time just grading. How, how do you say that? You know, there was a, a, a stone wall yeah. where there was a little bit of, not water, but just wetness, you yeah. know, humidity. And we just took a leaf and we spent the whole day just scraping it so that we could could leak, uh, how do you say, lick? Yeah, lick the, yeah. The, 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 lick the, the condensation off the leaf. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so that, that's what we did, right, as kids. My parents had totally different worries, you know, when we were going to get out of there, when we're going to get food and so on and so forth. So if they had to tell the story, they would tell it very differently, right? So uh, and so they never comment on what I choose to do. So the only thing my dad said was, I didn't have a mustache. (laughs) 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 And then my mom disagreed with one scene where she cried in a movie. Mm -hmm. And she said, I've never cried. I'm a tough one. (laughs) You know? And and then when she saw the movie, there was a a TV show which taped the first time that they saw the, the movie. Yeah. And we caught my mom on cam that she was, you know, dabbing her dabbing eyes, her crying. Eyes. Yes, 
But then after that, we asked her and said, I never cried. And said, we have the proof. You cried. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, what a joy to have you in. Thanks for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. What a luxury. Uh, luxury for me, too. And also, I love that she caught her mom crying because I've never cried before. Kim sees all. Uh, Kim Twee is an award-winning Canadian author. Rue, the film based on her novel of the same name, which is excellent, by the way, uh, especially if you like f- films that make you think. Well, Sarah, what I mean by that is films without a whole lot of dialogue, so you have to place your own emotions on it a lot. Uh, it's in theaters in Canada today. I'm Tom Power. You're listening to Q. Take a listen to this. You think you're a cellophane, posted up on my wall. I can get down and let you color show. If you and me were a song I wrote, do it all long ago. Won't be revolving around you no more. That is Tafari Anthony with Centerfold off his EP, The Way You See Me, which was nominated for a Juno a couple of years ago. Tafari Anthony is back with his debut full-length album. It's called When I Met Your Girlfriend. Cool title, right? Like, it made me kind of laugh the first time I saw it. But when you ask Tafari about that title, it brings up a story really personal to Tafari and one that led to some real heartbreak. If you've ever lost anyone that you love, I think you're going to relate to Tafari's story. Here's our conversation. When I Met Your Girlfriend is an excellent, uh, excellent album title. Thank you. Where did, where did that come from? Uh, I honestly spent months trying to figure out what would be the best kind of title for this thing. Um, you know, I had just started exploring polyamory while I was working on this album. So I was trying to find a way to hint to that without it being so obvious or being so blatant that if you weren't in that kind of situation, you wouldn't really get it. Um, so that was actually a line in one of the songs on the album. And I had maybe a list of like a hundred different title names. And I kept coming back to it thinking that it was kind of the perfect thing to kind of suggest something was not of a more traditional relationship, but it could mean many different things depending on who's reading it and what they've kind of been through. Right, right. And and I think um, that kind of uh, that kind of goes for the song we're going to talk about today evermore. Like depending yeah. on what you've gone through in your life, you're going to hear it a little bit differently as well. But I, I'd love for you just to tell me a little bit about it. Like, where did the song come from? Uh, so yeah, so it actually started through one of those relationships. Uh, it's actually the guy that kind of opened my eyes to the fact that I wanted that desire to have more multiple partners and things like that. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, when I wrote the song, we had kind of been together for, I think, probably like a month or two. Um, but he wasn't living in Toronto. So, you know, that's kind of like I'd see him like for a weekend every month kind of thing or maybe two weekends, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, so this is kind of like one of, this, one of those times where I went to go visit him and, you know, things were going great. And then towards the end of the visit, he just kind of like retreated and I didn't really know what was going on. But my nature is always to kind of like wanting to support people. Um, so this kind of came out of that where once I kind of figured out what was happening, he, you know, he explained to me that he was had experienced some trauma before. And as we were, you know, getting more intimate, that kind of came up unexpectedly. Um, and a lot of times when things like that happen, people often think, oh, it must be something that I'm doing or something that's wrong with me. But, you know, if you just ask the questions or take a moment to breathe, you'll kind of find out that it may not have anything to do with you. So this was like my way of trying to find a way to, you know, tell him that I would support him. And I still want to be there to do all those things, even though, you know, it may not go in the time frame that I would want. Right. Um, 
and yeah, and since that relationship has kind of ended, you know, spoiler alert, uh-huh. um, <laughs> I've been trying to find. <laughs> I've been trying I, to hope, find I hope this interview is how th- is not how they're finding out. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I had to end it because they could not do it. But that's a whole other story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A lot yeah. more time for that. Yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> but you know, either way, uh, I've been trying to find ways. Obviously, when the album's out now, it's you have to perform the songs, and it can be quite emotional performing things that you know you've kind of tried to deal with before, but they're still kind of fresh. Yeah. Um, so I'm trying. I've been trying to find ways to like relate these songs to other things that don't make me think about him too much. Right. Um, so you know, I as I've kind of grown with the song, and the song has been written for a couple of years now. Um, it kind of became more of an ode to supporting people in hard times. And would you kind of like take the moment or take the time to invest into somebody, regardless of how much time you might have for that person? Right. You're right, right, and that and that corresponds to uh, uh, another friend of yours, right? Yes, yeah, yeah. So I had a friend, my best friend, uh, passed away two years or a year ago now. Sorry, um, and so you know, she was someone who's always supported me no matter what. Uh, you know, I think a lot of relationships can feel very uh, contractual or very like you know, you need to get something from the relationship for it to work. Yeah, and, sure, sure. You're like, you're sort of, um, what do they call that? Uh, oh, like a transactional, a transactional yes, relationship. Yeah, exactly, right, right, yeah. Right, yeah. Which, I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing. That's just kind of the nature of how things go most of the time. Yeah. But it's very rare to find people who literally don't want anything from you except for just some time yeah. and just to connect with you, right? And she was that person for me. Um, and so, you know, through her, her passing away, um, I was kind of leading the song more to her because I felt like, you know, we we knew that she had terminal cancer and that there was going to be an, an end date to her life. Mm. Um, and a lot of people in that in those moments might kind of pull away or, you know, be like, okay, well, this is kind of ending. So, you know, I don't necessarily have to invest as much time in it. But I think for me, it was a moment for me to show her um, that I would support her in that as she has done for me over all the years that we've been friends. What does what do what does writing a song like this? I mean, it sounds like you're, you're talking about two very different sort of challenging things to go through. You yeah. know, one is you're entering into a, a relationship where someone sort of, you know, ghosts you, and then you you try to find out why that that was happening, and then you find out, hey, you know, it's not really about me. It's about this person's own sort of trauma that they've gone through, and something came up that reminded them of them. So I'm going to figure out what it's like to be there for them. Uh, even though you know the, this relationship may not be like progressing at the rate I hoped it would, and yeah. then and then you have this other friend who is so close to you, and this in this music business you and I both know the the number of people who are there for you for your time is like one, you know yeah. what I mean? So so you find this rare you find this rare person who you can you know you don't feel this transactional quality with, and then and then you sadly you know you you lose them. Does does writing the song? I mean, and, and at the beginning you were like, you know, Tom, like I these songs are for people who may see themselves in these you know not more non traditional relationships. But what about you? Like that feels like you went through a lot. Does writing a song like this help you? I mean, yeah. Like this is the reason why I write honestly. Like I. A lot of my music is very, very personal because it's it's kind of my way of exploring what I'm trying to go through um, and trying to you know ask a lot of questions in my songs because it's literally me trying to figure out like what is going on with a lot of my situations. So for me, it's a it's a very therapeutic thing to do writing music. 
Um, I don't often think about it too hard at the time. Like at the time, just kind of like this is what I feel. So it just kind of comes out. But as we know, you know, we work on demos and then it sits for a while and then it gets produced and there's a whole long process to actually get music out to people. Um, so as that process kind of goes through, you know, the more I listen to it or I have to re-sing it and this kind of stuff, um, you start to realize the connections that you may not have actually even thought about initially. Like, oh, okay, I see how this relates to what I was yeah. going through and how that might have helped me kind of push through that. You know what I mean? Yeah. How, how is, how is performing? You, you were talking about like some of the worries you were having around performing these, this song. How, how has it been? It's difficult. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Yeah. yeah. It's difficult. Honestly, like I, I love performing it because um, the audience is always without a fail really gets into it. Uh, it's a very like quiet moment. And as we know, in music, it's very hard to get people to be quiet in a venue. So to have people be in a venue, and just actually listen to the words and feel the emotion of it uh, and connect to the stories. You know, whether or not they've had someone who passed away or if they've dealt with this kind of relationship before, I think it's just it's just relatable on the fact of wanting to support people and getting through those moments. So it's it's always difficult. I usually don't make it to the end of the song, to be honest. Yeah. At the end of it, I'm usually in tears. Yeah. Because um, I do tell the whole story uh, before we get into it. And, you know, maybe that's <laughs> my downfall. But I think it's important that people know that because... You know, it helps them to also understand where I'm coming from, and it it, it inspires them to kind of hear the words more. Well, I, I think you've given us all something to listen to now here in the song that we're about to hear. Uh, I really appreciate you coming on. Can you can you do me a favor and tell us tell us who you are and introduce the song? Absolutely. So I'm Tafari Anthony, and this is Evermore from my debut album, When I Met Your Girlfriend. Treated you body in the moment I can only promise that I'll try my best To replace the scars with glorious moments This is a clear heart, baby A clear star's night Hold my hand Together we were man And I would do it Over and over again You know how I would 
That is Tafari Anthony with Evermore. Tafari Anthony is a songwriter and singer from Toronto. His new album, When I Met Your Girlfriend, is out now. That is it for the show this week. Q is produced by the best team in radio and podcasting. Ben Edwards, Vanessa Greco, you got Liz Hossein, you got Vanessa Nigro, can't forget Corey Najawan, and of course, Catherine Stockhausen. Our digital team is Eva Zhu, Amelia Ekbal, Shirley Grossman-Gray, March Mercanti, and Vivian Rashad. Our intern is Shanna Williamson. Our podcast producer is Caitlin Swan. Our directors this week were Matt or Matthew Murphy and Mitch or Mitchell Pollock. Our engineer is Sam Hashemi. Our senior producer is Beza Seifa. And McKeegan is our executive producer. And my name is Tom Power, and I talk into a microphone, and I say, what do you mean, a lot. Uh, if you're not following us on Instagram, we're at CBCQ. I'm there at Tom Joe Power. We'll see you soon. Later on. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.